0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As is our custom, we have been walking through the book of Judges. Now, we've taken a break for that for the season of Advent, but we want to resume our trek through the book of Judges. Picking up in chapter 14. We'll read that together. But as you're making your way there, I want to just kind of give you a, a, maybe a reintroduction as to where we've been. And, and the last thing we saw in the book of Judges in chapter 13 was the birth of Samson. Now, Samson is a Nazarite, and so that transitioned well for us. Uh, the other Nazarite, that is a, a literally a, a, a person who is consecrated, set apart for God's special and holy purpose is a preview to other Nazarites that would come, namely Samuel, who would be the forerunner to King David, and then John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus. And so Samson is the last of the 12 judges that the book of Judges explains for us and and introduces us to. It's the last of the major judges that is an entire, like a, a fifth of the book of Judges devoted to this single character. And we've been walking through it together as is our custom. This is uh, we're, we're picking up in the narrative of the Bible where God's people have just endured what we would call the Exodus in one of the first five books of the Bible where they were delivered from bondage and slavery and then granted a promised land, a, a place where they would receive God's promise and provision. And The book immediately following is the book of Joshua where they begin to inhabit and take over this land that God has promised to them. But the book immediately following Joshua, Joshua you'll find, is the book we're in now, the book of Judges, which is essentially the second generation of people beginning to settle in and make themselves comfortable in this promised land that God has given to them. And it's a building story of how this next generation of people begins to live amongst people who worship other gods. The climax of this book, the very last verse of the book Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the thing that we're building toward, every single judge and every single story and every single episode has been building towards this climax, a preparation for God's king. That is, apart from God's king, come to deliver and lead us out, we will destroy ourselves and everyone around us. Chaos will ensue. So we find ourselves being introduced to this Samson. So if you're looking at chapter 13, look at the very first verse. And the people of Israel did what, was, again, excuse me, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So now we're introduced to one of these other people who, who worshiped other gods that began to oppress and take over these people. But we also find in verse 5, chapter 13, this son that's to be born, this next judge or deliverer, verse 5 says, You shall conceive and bear a son, no razor shall come on his head. This is how they would live as a Nazarite. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And listen to this, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So this next deliverer, Samson, is taking the stage all the way. So if you read with me, verse 24 and 25 of chapter 13, the very last verses. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So this anointed young man, anointed by the Holy Spirit, to lead and begin to deliver. Israel from the oppressing power of the Philistines were introduced to beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. We'll read the entirety of it together beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her from me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman. And she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. "'His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. "'As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. "'And Samson said to them, "'Let me now put a riddle to you. "'If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, "'then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes.' But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he that is Samson said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said, to Samson's wife entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is lest we burn you and your father's house with fire have you invited us here to impoverish us and Samson's wife wept over him and said you only hate me you do not love me you have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is and he said to her behold i have not told my father or nor my mother and shall I tell you, she wept before him the seven days that their feasts lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him, that is Samson on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who he had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. My prayer is that this becomes more than just ink on the page for us, but the very words of God to us. A full fifth of the book is devoted to this character, Samson. Why? Why is that? To what end? For what purpose? And what we find here is to show us evidently just how bad things have gotten. I want to pose to you a question that in essence, Samson was sent to help these people answer and then deliver them from. How much do you want to fit in? Just what lengths will you go to to fit in? What lengths will you go to just to blend in? How important is it to you to belong? How much effort do you put into looking just like everybody else? Now down underneath the answer to that question, I believe is the very image of God imprinted upon us. That we were made to belong. We were made for community. We were made for communion with God our Creator and communion with the people that He has set aside for His purposes. But in a broken and fallen world, might I say in a world where people do whatever is right in their own eyes, those beautiful and godly impulses are perverted and used to destroy one another. And down deep we just want to blend in. We don't want to stand out. And feeling the rejection and alienation of the people around us is one of the most terrifying things for us. I know for some of you it may even be why you're here. We just want to blend in. Samson, as the last of these major judges, is sent by God to deliver these people from what seems like an okay impulse, that they have completely and utterly blended in with the Philistines. Look at the very first words of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and while he was there, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now I've got to translate that for you just a little bit. Timnah would have been a would have been this, a central uh, a central location where the Israelites would have settled and lived. It, it wouldn't have been on the fringe or outskirts of the Promised Land, but instead it would have been a a central place in which there would have been a, a pretty dense population of Israelites. And and as we've seen up to this point, as God had commanded them not to blend in or intermarry or or be uh, in covenant or commitment with the people of the land we find something provocative in verse 1. What's going on there? There's a Philistine woman, the daughters of the Philistine, daughters of the Philistines, just living amongst the Israelites, and it's no big deal. It's no big deal at all. And what we would come to find here is that Israel is completely enmeshed in the surrounding culture. I told you this is a trajectory towards people doing whatever is right in their own eyes. But, but there's a way in which we're meant to, we're, we're meant to like, be attentive to how that might play out. You see, we live in which, in, I would say in a setting, and the, the dominant prevailing theme of our own culture is that contentment and satisfaction comes through self-discovery, self-gratification, self-esteem, self-assertion. All the good things that, that you might be able to have in this life, you can find in the self. Discover yourself, right? Express yourself. That's a dominant theme. And yet we find here that that is actually the marker of utter and complete depravity. That is the marker, that is the indicator of complete and total judgment of God. And what we find is that apart from God's King come to set us free from ourselves, to deliver us from our captor and enemy, redeem us, and set us back in His restored purpose for Himself and His glory and our joy, then we will enter into a cycle of destruction, destroying ourselves and destroying all the people around us. Now the narrator here is telling us that evidently things have gotten so bad that the people of Israel don't even care. They're they're not even worried about the fact that they are completely enmeshed in the culture of the Philistines. They don't even feel the tension anymore. They're just living amongst these people who worship other idols, worshiping the same things being uh, being held captive to their oppression, and they're not even mad about it. Now remember, the cycle that we saw throughout the, the entirety of Judges is this cycle in which sin or their disobedience or the rebelliousness of God's people leads them to be in a, a, a desperate situation. In that desperate situation, they, they call out or, or repent or look to God, and then, and then there's some sort of deliverance. Now, I've given you a few alliterations here from all sorts of commentarians. If you really want to be a judge scholar, find a way to describe, that, uh, describe that, uh, that cycle with all the same letters, right? And so this has been the cycle. Something bad happens, they cry out to God, and then God sends a judge, more literally a leader or deliverer, to set them free from the idol-worshipping people who have oppressed them. But if you'll notice something, the cycle now is utterly broken. Notice from chapter 13 as we read it, even to chapter 14, did you catch what was missing? There's no supplication. People don't cry out to God for help. There's no desperation. People longing for God to deliver them. There's no repentance. Now I want you to see something powerful in this cycle. The cycle that I I want to convince you exists even now in our own hearts. God sends someone to save those who do not even want to be saved. A lot of people might kind of pitch something to you like the, the, the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and wrath, and the God of the New Testament is, is a God of mercy and grace, right? And, some, and pit them against one another. One of the earliest of, a, of, the, of the Christian heresies, the belief that like, there's like a, this kind of disconnectedness, a disintegration between the character of God in the Old and New Testament. And, and I want to convince you that's not the case at all. In fact, the grace of God is visible through the entirety of the Bible, In fact, right after the very first story where the people rebel against God and he doesn't destroy them, every single verse and chapter after that is an evidence of God's grace. And here we are in a cycle where people don't even repent. They don't even cry out. They like they are fully comfortable with rebelling against God. They are quite satisfied indeed to worship things less than God. And yet, where do we see God's grace most powerfully seen here? While they were yet in the cycle dead in their trespasses, while they were yet dead in sin, that was when God redeemed them. They didn't even know they needed it and they didn't even want it. And yet God's grace is visible that He sends a hero, a deliverer, for a group of people who don't even want it, who are completely enmeshed in the surrounding culture. I want you to see here one of the most powerful ways we do whatever is right in our own eyes is that we will do anything to fit in. Notice here that the first thing Samson does, he goes down to a place full of Israelites, but also full of Philistines, and is like, I'll just have one of those. And the people were, at that point, so accustomed to living in the same culture, the same, surrounded by this group of people who worship lesser gods that... They didn't care. They just just didn't want the trouble. They didn't want the conflict. They didn't want to have to fight. They, They didn't want to have to go against the grain. Feel that? I know many of you, that's the tension you feel even as you're here. I know for many of you, even the fact that you're present in this room is going against the grain of your family. I know many of you, just being here in this room, just pursuing the grace of God in Christ, has put you at odds with people that you love. So I want you to not judge the Israelites too harshly. They want to fit in with their coworkers just as bad as you. They don't want to be accused of being a part of a cult any more than you. They don't want to be thought of as weird or outcasts or or rejects any more than you. They don't want to experience abandonment and rejection any more than you. But notice, that evidently, at least chronologically in the book of Judges, if not spiritually, theologically, and even emotionally, is just a step towards doing whatever's right in your own eyes. I want you to see there's a powerful thing going on, God's grace to send them a deliverer. God is working in the midst of their enmeshment to call them out and deliver them for his good purpose. It says here that then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now this is pretty profound. In, in the book of Judges, you've seen this. We get like these little pretty powerful life lessons. Now a lot of the life lessons in the book of Judges are related to parenting or literally passing on faith and dependence and a covenant keeping God to the next generation, because the book of Judges is a, it's a case study in what happens when the next generation rebels against the faith of their parents, when, when they fail to pass on repentance and humility, and when that next generation fails to absorb it for themselves. So, there's lots of tidbits we saw from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 7. How it is that we're to model humility and repentance to children. There's a a lot of little tips for parenting, but if you caught it here in verse, or in the the entirety of chapter 14, you'll see it in 15 as well. There's a bunch of little tidbits, uh, little tips here and there of of dating. Did you catch them? We're introduced to the character of Samson right off the bat. Now, it's hard to see this, the, the English, we don't talk this way, but. But we typically have a subject predicate structure like I this. And so you'll see, I saw one of the daughters. But literally in the Hebrew, don't don't miss this, the very first word that the narrator of the book of Judges tells us comes out of the mouth of Samson is the word woman. He literally says, woman I saw of the daughters of the Philistines. The first word. And this is profound because you begin to see this for the rest of the story of Samson. This is who Samson is. First word out of his mouth the thing he's the most fixated on he's obsessed i saw one of the daughters of the philistines of Timnah. now get her for me as my wife now, don't miss that this this was a culture in which parents would have played a very active role in, in setting up and arranging a marriage for their children and so there's there's a bunch of stuff going on here and the parents even see this they say well you know Why won't you marry someone who's a part of our people? Why must you go marry someone else who worships other gods? And he insists, no, 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 get her. She's right in my own eyes. Now verse 4 gives us a little indicator. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. What was from the Lord? What was from the Lord was that Samson would pursue a woman. He would pursue a woman of the Philistines that would lead to, as you even saw in this chapter in the next, a fight. God is working, even in the midst of their enmeshment, to call them out and deliver them for His good purpose. You see, what you find here is that if left to their own devices, the Israelites are not going to give up their relationship with the Philistines. Left up to them, they're just going to like, look, let's just be at peace with them. Let's not pick a fight Let's not try to, to go against the grain of what they believe. Let's just, let's just let's put your head down and let's, just, let's not make a mess. And Samson, left to his own devices, is not going to initiate God's calling on his life to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so something powerful happens. God has a plan for their redemption from the tyranny of the enemy. Now what we're introduced to to Samson is like, He just has this, like, ferocious desire and lust for women. But he also has a massive temper, which, strangely enough, tend to travel together. So much that he subverts the cultural standard, at least what the Israelites would have lived by, instead of letting the parents be a part of bringing another family together in covenant marriage. What does he say? No, you do this for me. You go get her. In direct contradiction to the way they would have done things, in a direct contradiction to Exodus chapter 34, Deuteronomy 6 and 7, they're commanded over and over and over again: don't, don't do if you if you marry idol worshipers, this is what will happen. They're going to turn your heart away. And and some of you who are grandparents know this. Because once that that grandchild comes along, it becomes really difficult, if not impossible, to, to confront. And I know some of you grandparents, you have no ability to confront your grandchildren. God bless you for that. But but it's a picture, is it not? I mean, it's all fun and games. Samson marries uh, marries this woman of the Philistines, but once they have a child, then how are they going to live distinctly from the idol worshipers? Their heartstrings are already tied. They're already being pulled away from the loyalty that they were meant to have to the God who had delivered them and promised to be with them and for them. God has a plan even in the middle of this. He's demanding, but we find in verse 4, evidently, there's the mystery, is it not? The sovereignty of God, even over the corrupt desires of the people. And while what we see is this rebellion of Samson to do whatever he wants, there's actually something else going on. And it's an encouragement to us as we live in a way that's against the grain counter to our own culture. You see, while sin overwhelms our own story, it's all we can see here, at least in the first three verses, evidently it does not overwhelm God. The plot is being moved along in the first few verses by what? Lust, greed, anger, idolatry, and yet we find in verse 4 an encouragement that sets the tone for the rest of the book. Fear not, God can use these broken people This is the good news for us, isn't it? Samson's self-centeredness and sinful desires did not prevent God from accomplishing his will. And get this, neither do ours. We're invited to contemplate a mystery, are we not? How could God be at work in such a corrupt and vile, lustful, impetuous child that is Samson. Praise be to God, the same way he works through you and me. In spite of, in the midst of our own corruption, our lusts, our idolatry, our settling for lesser things than God alone. Don't miss the grace of God, the good news throughout this story that God is pleased to use corrupt and vile means to achieve his purposes. And evidently, even these vile purposes won't thwart God's good will for His people. God allows this to happen. Even though they're enmeshed in the culture, evidently, it doesn't stop God from His plan to save them. And in fact, God, even through this vile man, Samson, is beginning to move the plot to destroy the enemy to set his people free from the enemy's tyranny. That's a mystery. I, don't get me wrong. This is a doozy to, to deal with, right? Like, how, is it, how could God be working through this? And, and you'll notice the language 14 different times in this particular passage, the word or the form of the word to tell shows up over and over again. Did you catch this? Almost every verse, and in some verses, two to three times the word's to tell. And this story, in effect, is a, it's like a provocative poking at us of the sovereignty of God in the awful circumstances because on one hand there's there's a telling of things and it seems to be this way but on the other hand there's a telling of things and not telling and secrets did you catch that even from the beginning Samson keeps secrets from his parents starting in verse five goes and does this amazing thing and yet keeps it a secret and there's this reflection for the rest of the chapter Look at verse 5. Then Samson went down. Now that's the second time we've seen the phrase went down. You'll see it five times in this chapter. It's meant to be kind of like the, the narrative marker, right? It, it's moving on to the next section. You'll see in verse 5, they went down. You'll see it uh, three, different more, three more times. It went down and something else happened. So verse 5, he goes down, see this woman. He's going to go take her. And he comes to the vineyards at Timnah. So we've got to pause for just a minute. Kind of, kind of think about what's really going on. First thing did you catch before he goes down to get this woman, okay, with his father and mother. The first, thing, he says twice, she is right in my own eyes. She's right in my own eyes. And we're meant to see here the tension that not only are the people doing whatever is right in their own eyes, but this last judge of the people, this last deliverer, it's so bad even the judge and deliverer does what's right in his own eyes. That's how bad things have gotten. And here's the catch. Here's the the little bits of dating advice slipped in here. She's right in my own eyes, right? That probably sounds like a really good pickup line, doesn't it? I'm I'm certain I probably used some derivative of this when I first met my wife. Something to the effect of, you're right in my eyes. Maybe I was more suave about it. Maybe 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 I was poetic about it. It's really tricky here, isn't it? If someone were to say that to you, that would feel really good. In fact, what I would argue is most relationships that exist are built on this premise. You're right in my own eyes. Because I'm going to go get this woman who's right in my own eyes. But I want to push you. this, This is not a what to do. This isn't a how to pick up a woman or a man. In fact, this is how to live in a way that is rebellious against God and His purposes. Because one of the more powerful things going on, that's not love. I've illustrated this for you before, right? I love my wife, and I also love cows. Love cows. But let me explain my love for cows. I love cows so much that I'm okay with what's called animal husbandry. I don't mind them being artificially inseminated Locked up, put in, a, put in a cage, left out in the cold. Like, is anyone worried about how cold the cows are, right? No. Right? Put in a truck that's freezing cold, that drives. And, and then I, I love those cows so much, I don't mind if you shoot them in the back of the head, slice them into pieces, hang them up, and serve them medium rare to rare on a plate. That's how much I love cows. But do you get that? I don't really care anything about their well being. In fact, quite the opposite. I don't, mind. I don't care what you do to them. Get them on the plate. <laughs> I don't mind if you use them, abuse them, kill them, slaughter them, cut them up. Don't care. They're delicious. Here's the problem most people, when they say, I love, and fill in the blank with another person, They have the same view of love as I have for cows. I don't have any value for you. I don't have any honor for you. You are just really convenient for me. I really like the benefits you bring. So just be aware. This is one of the first little hey, 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 men and women as we relate to one another in a broken, fallen world one of the first things that we're going to want to do is use one another for our own benefit. That's one of the first one of the first effects of the curse in the fall, right? Genesis 3, like, look, he's going to be this way, she's going to be this way. And they're going to start using each other, They're going to lord over one another. But, but just beware, when I say, I love cows and I love my wife, and two simultaneous sentences, I'm tempted to love one in a way that I ought not love the other. Namely, to use that person for my own purposes. I want what's right in my own eyes. And that might seem right at first, but it's not love, and it's a very clear step towards rebelling against God completely. It's worshiping something so much that you will sacrifice a person on its altar. Samson goes down with his father and mother to Timnah. They come to, now here's the second part of this, the vineyards of Timnah. Now if you'll go to Numbers chapter 6, you'll see an outline of what is the Nazarite vow, what it means to live as a consecrated person, set aside for God's holy purposes. And we see this for the rest of the story. One of them is they don't cut their hair, right? And, and so it's kind of funny because I don't know what you picture Samson as, but, but at this point in his age, like, he's, he's probably like less like Thor and more like Rapunzel because he has not cut his hair for his entire life. But the hair was meant to point to and mark off himself as one who is set aside. Like, why is that guy? What's that about, right? And you're meant to see, like, wow, look how long his hair is. He must be living a holy life. Because look how long he has consecrated his life for the purposes of the Lord. But look what he does. He goes to a vineyard. Now, if you look at Numbers chapter 6, outlined in the the vow of the Nazarite, you're meant to avoid all wine and all grapes. So Already we got a problem. They're in the vineyards of Temna. Do you see it? He's already doing whatever's right in his own eyes. And then, behold, a young lion comes toward him, roaring, verse 6, then the spear of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. This is like, the incredible Hulk in the Old Testament. I mean, whatever superhero you can imagine, a lion roars, and you almost feel bad for the, bad for the lion. Was the, was the lion actually going to hurt him? Maybe he was just scared. Maybe, maybe the lion was just, you know, firing a warning shot. Samson says, forget this, rips the lion apart. Second problem, if you read number six, the other thing that we saw, even in chapter 13, is that to live a Nazarite and consecrated life, was to stay away from all dead bodies, all carcasses, and if even someone uh, the new number six says, if someone were to die next to you, if you were to go to the temple, temple offer sacrifices to reinvoke the vow, to be cleansed, to make sacrifices to, to re-enter into this vow of holiness. And what do we see here? He goes wherever he wants, and he has no problem being around dead bodies, so much so that you can see maybe a Maybe a bit of his conscience, I don't know. Maybe it's like some arrogance. Maybe he's saving it up, but he says, "But he did not tell his father, or his mother what he had done. So he went down and talked with the woman. And again, verse seven, she was what? Right in Samson's eyes. Verse eight, after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and the honey get this, instead of avoiding this dead body, what does he do? He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And then you get the kind of an echo of, of Genesis chapter 3, right? Where, where Eve like brings the fruit to Adam and they enjoy it together. Even they're not supposed to, but they're, they're almost like feasting in rebellion. Did you catch this? He, he brings it to his father and mother and, they, and he kind of leads them into rebelling against this vow that they've made. He did not tell them. Did you hear that word again? Did not tell them. That he had scraped honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman. Samson prepared a feast there for so young men used to do. Another little bit of dating advice. Men cook for a woman. I know you've heard maybe the phrase, a woman's place is in the kitchen. Which is true. Unless you are a masculine warrior, muscular, enemy slayer, lion terror partner, then you cook. <laughs> and if you are a mighty warrior, come join us in the kitchen. You think I'm kidding. You think I'm kidding. He goes to prepare a feast for this woman. He's a part of this. It's no joke. And just in case you're like, whoa, man, we, we, times have changed. What is it? Well, that's what young men used to do. So, Verse 11, as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Literally, they're like guards. They're Philistines who would be with him through the duration of this thing. And, and then we're introduced to this conflict that's under the surface. And Samson said to them, now let me put a riddle to you if you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast, and find out, then I will give the thirty. I will give you thirty linen garments. Like it's almost like saying I'm going to buy you a Gucci suit. It's going to be nice, and I'm going to give you a change of clothes so that you won't wear the Gucci suit too much. I'm going I'm, I'm to take care of you. But if you can't tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. Now that's interesting because what what use would would Samson have for thirty suits and changes of clothes other than like a trophy for his own prowess and so just, they said okay tell us your riddle and now in the english it's a coincidence that this rhymes okay it doesn't rhyme in the hebrew but instead it's meant to be a picture of like out of the eater right and this and this you just killed a lion a man eater comes something to eat and he ate the honey and out of something strong comes something sweet now this is pretty pretty profound there is conflict running through this whole passage And the Lord uses Samson to bring it to the surface, to deliver his people, to to make God's people unsettled with the people they're living with at that time. And one of the ways you see it is in the wedding. Underneath the the current of the wedding, did you catch that? There's this tension and conflict. Have you ever been to a wedding where there's like tension and unresolved conflict bubbling under the surface? They're called weddings. Weddings. I mean, if I just did your wedding in the last year or two, not yours, clearly, <laughs> clearly not yours, it's clearly someone else. And as if like there, there, there comes a time to celebrate and enjoy the time together, right? Did you just catch what happens here? It's like, all right, all right, and it bubbles up. You see, Sam said, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to put to you a riddle. Now, that this riddle, it's a, it's a weird, it's like a conundrum or a mystery. The, the best comparison probably for us is more like I spy, right? It's more like a, 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 I spy something. And, and, and it, for us, that would probably make more sense, like explain this, or where might one see this kind of thing? As if to say, I spy, like a, an out of a, I spy out of an eater comes something to eat. And I spy out of something very strong comes something sweet. Now, Now, it's meant to be kind of elusive, right? Maybe he's talking about love and the wedding, right? Maybe he's talking about himself and his care for for this woman, right? But evidently not. And and in three days, they couldn't solve the riddle. And so look what they do. They go to Samson's wife. Now, again, this is ironic. All the the secrecy, what's hidden and what's visible is is all throughout the passage. And you see it even there. She's, She's still called his wife because they're committed. But Throughout, like the, Even though the, the wedding for seven days isn't consummated until the seventh day, she's referred to as the wife, even though as you read the next chapter in, in verse 20, she's not. By the end of the story, she's not his wife. But they entice her. And so Samson's wife weeps over him. You, you hate me. You do not love me. Dating tip number three or whatever, uh, beware of emotional manipulation. He's going to look down. And move on. <laughs> Don't you even love me? Oh, yeah. No one's ever told me that before. I just want you to know that. I just... You put a riddle to my people and you haven't even told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I haven't even told my father or mother. Why would I tell you? A relationship number, tip number four, like, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Don't, please, man, don't talk to your wife like that, right? As we would call it, like every man, there needs to be a second cutting of the umbilical cord, okay? Yeah, somebody, it, it just clicked, You're like, oh, yeah. She weeps until the seventh day of the feast, and the seventh day he told her the... The, the solving of the riddle. He, he told this woman, why? Because she pressed him hard. Now you're meant to read between the lines here. On the seventh day of the wedding, that's the wedding night. That's when this relationship would have been consummated. And if there was one thing you, held, you could hold over Samson, we see from here on out, it's sexual pleasure. She pressed him hard. And then what'd she do? She told the riddle to her people. They had threatened her. They were going to kill her. But I want you to notice something powerful. Samson thought he was taking a woman, and for the rest of the story you've been seeing, we see him kind of in this pursuit of conquest over women. And we're meant to be provoked by that. Because what we seek in selfish conquest actually conquers us. The place where Samson thought he really had the control, right? hey, mom, dad, get me that girl, right? She looks good in my eyes. They're like, don't. He's like, do it, right? Now he's, now he's feeling good. His ego's rushing hard. He's got like a, you know, he's just, he's just feeling good about himself. I just, I don't know what you would feel like if you ever tore a lion apart with your bare hands. I feel really great about myself for much lesser things, right? So he's feeling really good about himself, feeling like he really owns it. And Look what happens. Those places where he thought he was really winning are the places where he ends up experiencing the greatest loss. She turns on him. Now, look the way he turns on her, and he said to him, if you had not plowed with my heifer, I don't know, relationship advice number, whatever, don't do that. (laughs) I don't know why that's funny. There's nothing funny about that. And so there's a euphemism here, right? Because you wouldn't use a heifer to plow. But Do you read between the lines here? He's accusing her. If all of you hadn't slept with her, used her, you wouldn't have found out the riddle. You see that? The place he felt like he was a conqueror was actually the place where he was most conquered. He was living under an oath. On the outside, he was living the life of a sacred and set-apart person. But Notice, oh, that's, that's, there's no speech between me, not there. We are susceptible where we declare our most solemn oaths. Put it this way, our oaths are the places where we are most likely to justify ourselves. Now, multiple different times, Samson should have entered into the narrative and said, hey, I'm not supposed to be doing this. We should turn around. Like, we should repent. We should do something different. I'm not supposed to be doing this. This is not how things are supposed to be going. But evidently, he was like under the, this power of this oath, this outward appearance that he had to keep up. And yet, in that place where he was supposed to be living a certain way, that was the place where he was evidently most susceptible to Rebellion. I would say the same thing to you. Jesus tells us this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Don't swear by God's name or this or that. Hey, how about you just let your yes be a yes? In fact, some of the places where we have our most solemn oaths are the places where we're trying to cover something up. I promise I'll do this. And, and, And don't miss that. Like, your broken promises are where God means to show you to stop trusting in yourself. And Samson thinks he's on top of the world, does he not? He's got everything right. Everything seems to be going for him. And so he's quite comfortable trusting in himself in these areas. Fine, I can, I can fix this problem with violence, Right? for the next couple of chapters, I can fix this problem. I can make everything okay with a woman. And some of the places where we're the most rebellious, the places where we're most tempted or most likely or even have broken promises are exactly where God means to show us stop trusting in yourself. And we you to see this. That's, that's what kind of false repentance got us here. Like when you're caught, where do you look for justification? True repentance, when, when we, we confess and when it comes to the light, we say, thank God I don't have to hide anymore. And thank God that Christ justifies me. He alone can atone for my sin. He alone can make me right again. He alone can make me new and clean and whole. But fake repentance, and if you're in this room and you might call yourself a Christian, this might sound Common for you, you'll say, I did the wrong thing. I promise I'll never do it again. Stop for a minute and ask yourself, who are you hoping in in that? You're saying, I can handle this. I am justified by my works. I am justified because I'm not ever going to do this again. Are there promises you've broken? to yourself, to the people around you? Friend, that's the place God means to invite you to experience His grace. To say, I've got this. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson in verse 19. goes down to Ashkelon other Philistines, kills 30 of them. Now you see God working, right? The people are really... Really comfortable living with the Philistines, and God's like, Well, this is watch this, right? And like, Samson, the loose cannon, comes in there, he's gonna pick a fight. Not only did he pick a fight at a wedding, he's gonna pick a fight with these unsuspecting Philistines, and it's just gonna escalate. And God's gonna work sovereignly, even in the midst of this. But Samson's wife is given to his companion. I mean, after all, the, we see in the next chapter, come to find out, Samson didn't know that, but but after after seeing Samson in his true colors you would too give away hey maybe you should marry someone else but i want you to see here this this whole thing this this may seem like a, a mess this may seem like a like chaos but but i hope you'll realize it, and even in, i want to invite you into this to, this is what i think makes the old testament and the rest of the bible so beautiful it doesn't it doesn't gloss over human like human interactions does it it's like, this, this is how people interact. This is what people do when they're left to their own devices. And yet somehow, we're invited to consider the mystery that God might work to redeem those people. And for some of you, a story like this is awful because maybe you're just moralistic and you really wish Samson would just be a good guy. And you're invited to realize, no, God is the hero of this story. Everyone else is not. And the Bible, even though maybe in the midst of tragedy, People might come along and say, Well, it's not that bad. The Bible says, No, it's awful. If God doesn't come in and fix this, then we're lost. But this is pointing to something. If you look closely, this is pointing to something. This is an appetizer for something. Samson is getting us ready for something. This chaos, this disappointment, it's pointing to something. Your misery is pointing to something. Your disappointment, your broken promises, they're pointing to something. Romans 8 says that all of creation is in groaning like like a pregnant woman. And a woman's pregnancy is, if this isn't painfully obvious for you, pointing to something. Something is coming. And your broken promises your broken relationship, maybe even your addictions, your secrets, the things you don't want anyone to know. They're pointing to something. They're pointing to something. And here is our hope. These awful things didn't stop God's purpose to deliver His people by defeating their enemy. And the awful things in your life, praise God, won't stop God from redeeming even those things. And look what it's pointing to. It's pointing to this is going somewhere. This story doesn't end here, it's headed somewhere. And while Samson went off and, and slaughtered the, the enemy out of anger and malice, Jesus put the enemy to death because of love. Jesus used, pe- excuse me, Samson uses people around him to get what he wants. And Jesus lays himself down so that we might have what we truly want. Samson puts other people in harm's way and Jesus jumps into harm's way for us. Look at this. Samson gives up on, turns on this outsider betraying bride. Jesus lays down his life for the outsider betraying bride. The strong hero here throws off, right, throws this woman away because she's unworthy. And Jesus was thrown out and betrayed to make his bride worthy. Samson broke the oath of the Lord and oath with his people. Jesus keeps his oath to you and to me to never forsake us. Samson pillaged the enemy. Did you catch that? He pillaged the oppressor to pay off a debt. Jesus has pillaged the enemy and the oppressor to clothe us and to pay off a debt we could never repay. Friend, this chaos, this mess, in chapter 14, and the chaos and mess in your life is pointing to something. It's pointing to something. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, maybe, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I'm so glad you're here. Maybe, maybe you've bought into to what Judges says, right? What's most important is I do what's right in my own eyes. Like, I mean, we're living in a place where right now it's fully acceptable to say these words. You do you. Right? Can I just ask you, maybe if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, how's that working for you? Seeking yourself and what you want, making yourself, is it working? Maybe for some of you, if you just look at your relationships, you're using other people to get what you want. How's that working for you? And for you, if you're in this room and Maybe you're not a believer. The question I would have for you, is it possible that deep dissatisfaction that you know you feel and you're trying to hide is an invitation to trust in a deliverer who has broken into the cycle, even when we weren't looking for it, to grant us a greater hope than we could ever imagine? Might you consider the possibility that this Samson, that our stress... Our sorrow is pointing to something. It's pointing to something that Jesus has come to satisfy and correct. Let's pray together. Thank God for this. Lord, we love you. You have sent the deliverer um, even before we knew we needed it. You have sent your son Jesus to make us alive and unite us with yourself even while we are running away. I thank you so much for Samson. I thank you for his life. I thank, you, I thank you for the honest look we get to see him and I thank you for the ways that he even provokes me to self-reflection. I pray that even this story of Samson might do that for us in the room that we might see our own selfishness and self-centeredness, that we might see our own regular desire to use people to get what we want, how we hide behind promises and religious behavior to, to cover up deep and secret sin. I thank you for Samson. I thank you what an example he is to us. But God, I thank you that Samson's not our hero. I thank you that Samson is just a foretaste of the Savior that came to take our place, to die the death that we deserve, to be resurrected victorious over our enemy and grant us the gift and pillage and spoil that we never ourselves earned. Thank you that in Christ we have victory. Thank you that in Christ we have a true and better prophet and hero. Thank you that in Christ we are the recipients of a gift bought by such strength. Might we turn from trusting in lesser things, looking against the grain to experience the hope and joy that comes from knowing that our Redeemer is sure, our hero and king has come, and we need but look to him in faith to receive the benefits of his kingdom. We thank you for this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.